a kingdom of priests, not the absolute kingdom here, but it's a kingdom that is mediating the graces of God to the people around us uh, as we appropriate it as, as a group of people. Now I want you to notice back in chapter 5, I'm sorry, I turned you to chapter 6 first. We're not going to talk about what follows what we talked about last night, but I want you to notice it. It says, ye are the salt of the earth. Ye are the salt of the earth. Ye are the light of the world. The purpose of this is influence. Is to have an influence on the world around us. And uh, somebody has said, the character of influence is the influence of character. And that's what we were talking about last night. We were talking about the influence of character. And I want you to notice, it talks about the salt losing its savor. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but salt cannot be anything but salt. NaCl, sodium chloride, cannot in any way be anything else. It'd be like saying water that has lost its wetness. So how does sodium chloride lose its saltiness? Only by one way, by mixture, by diluting it with water, or diluting it with sand, or diluting it with something. For it to be salty, it has to be unmixed. And I would like to spend a lot of time on that because we are seeing an assimilation. We're seeing some mixture in our churches. And uh, the, 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 great, the great mixture, the thing we're talking about is, and I'm going to put it in caps. The great enemy of true spirituality is self-expression. And we had that rebuked in every one of the characteristics we talked about last night. Self-expression, individualism, is the enemy of what we're talking about. When, when self gets mixed with Christ, it gets diluted. And, uh, you know, I, I'd like to challenge, young fellow, when you go to buy that car, or when you're, anybody's calculating how they're going to present themselves, are you thinking how you're going to uh, express self? Uh, people are going to take notice here if I do this, if I add this to my appearance, or I add this to do this with my car, or any other possession that I have, the house I built. Is it going to draw attention to self? Are we going to mix self with it? Or are we going to let Jesus express these wonderful, lowly characteristics we talked about last night? And so, in order for this to change, there has to be something done about this. And we talked about putting self on the cross and Christ on the throne with a new birth. Not just as an event. Most Christians believe that new birth is an event. It's a sawdust trail. You come down, you have an emotionally defining experience, and you're born again. Well, that's the beginning. But this pictures a process. In fact, Christian Burkholder, who was a bishop here in this area, in this county, uh, talked about the work of the new birth. And uh, he describes that. How many have ever read his address to youth on true repentance? Well, you should. Uh, if you buy that Conversations of Saving Faith that the old orders always keep in print, at the back of that you have Peter uh, Christian Burkholder's writings. And it's a very short essay. It'll take you 15 minutes to read it in which he talks about this process of the new birth, this work of the new birth, okay? So <clears throat> it's an ongoing work, and it produces a particular kind of personality, and we looked at that last night. It's a, it's a person who is, has totally lost his dependence on himself and is looking to God to give him what he needs 
uh, and is totally surrendered to Christ, and he enters the kingdom. And then he sees his sin. He sees the sin of the world. He sees the holiness of God, and it causes him a deep sense of mourning, which leads to uh, good things that God can do. It, once we get a proper view of ourselves, a proper view of the world, a proper view of God, good things begin to happen, and we are comforted. And then because we've seen our own sin, we're kind to other people. We realize that the problems that uh, cause us to be irritated are the same problems we have. So we're gentle in our strengths that are developing in our character. And then by that time, we have this passion for righteousness. We want to be right. And uh, then we're gorged and filled because that's what we were made for. We were made to be right. We were not made to ingest sin. We were not made for all this stuff that uh, most people live in. And uh, we could go on down through that, but we have too much other to talk about tonight. Now you can turn to Matthew chapter 6. But I just want to challenge you. In making your decisions, think, think this. Think, is this going to allow Christ to be expressed, or is this an expression of self? Am I doing this to get notice to myself? And the other thing you should think about is, what's it going to do to the body? Is it going to bring worldliness in? Is it going to bring a mixture in? Is it going to... Uh, 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 somehow defile? Is it going to cause division? Is it going to cause, yeah, all kinds of things that happen to our fellowships because of self. It's all because of this. This is what it is. A refusal to allow self to be crucified and Christ to be exalted and, and the brotherhood to be edified and built up. Okay. So, <clears throat> we have the kingdom prayer now. This is a very important part of, of what Jesus had to teach. In fact, I hope by the end of the evening, I have convinced you that if you could live this prayer, you would basically have all of Christianity under your belt. This prayer is a wonderful prayer. It was given at the request of the disciples. They saw that the secret of Jesus was his prayer life. They never asked him to teach them to preach. They never asked him to teach them to heal. They never ask him to teach them how to cast out devils. This is the only thing they ever ask him to teach them to do because they sense if they could learn to pray like Jesus prayed, all these other things would, would come to them. They saw their master praying without ceasing. You know, we used to think, how in the world could you pray without ceasing? And now I see we can learn to text without ceasing. So I guess we could have learned to pray without ceasing. All right, and Jesus did that. He could, prayed without ceasing. He was praying when the Holy Spirit came upon him at his baptism. He was praying after he, after he fed the 5,000. He prayed all night before choosing his disciples. He prayed for his, after healing and teaching in Luke 5, 16. He was praying when he was transfigured. He said demons can't be cast out except by prayer and fasting. And by the way, when you need to cast out a demon, you don't start praying and fasting. That has to be done ahead of time. He said men ought always to pray and not to faint. He prayed in Gethsemane before his crucifixion. That's a famous prayer. And he said to his disciples in the middle of that prayer, watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now prayer in the case of Jesus was not uh, <clears throat> just preparation for the battle which was to happen afterward. It was the battle. That was the battle. I want you to see that. I want you to turn to Mark 14. Keep your finger here in Matthew. Mark 14, verse 33. <clears throat> this pictures Jesus in a way that we usually don't think of him. It says in verse 33, 
in the garden, he began to be sore amazed and heavy, very heavy. You read that in another translation. Let me read it for you in another translation. Stricken with horror and terror and desperately depressed. Did you ever think of Jesus that way? He faced the cross with the same feelings you and I would. In fact, he was facing something worse than what we would ever experience. And he was terrified. And he was horrified. And he was fighting a tremendous depression. But he conquered that in the garden. And after that prayer in the garden, it says the angels came and strengthened him. And then the battle was won. And he marched out with poise and dignity. If you want to see what it looks like when you're not prepared by prayer, look at the disciples. They were flustered. They scattered. They couldn't handle it. They, 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 they had not won the battle. The battle is won in the closet. If you fail out there, that's not where the failure took place. The failure took place in your prayer life. The rest, after he fought that battle in the garden, the rest was just simply taking the spoil, like it says in Isaiah 53. But if you neglect the closet, you will go forth. I guarantee you. I, and the reason I know it is because I've experienced it. You go for, out to meet failure and defeat. J. Oswald Smith said it this way. There are seven words, if Christians took them seriously, they would change the world. Here they are. You have not because you ask not. You have not because you ask not. He said those are seven words that would change the world if we ever believed those. Did you know that neglected prayer can be actually sin? Sin means to miss the mark. And Samuel said one time, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. So a neglect of prayer is actually missing the mark, which is the, is the classic definition for sin. All right? Now here we have an amazing model prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Christians in the past and our early Anabaptists actually did what I'm going to do tonight. They actually used this as a preparation for baptism. They used this for instruction. You can find Anabaptist sermons that are instruction to new converts that are simply an exposition of this prayer. They believed that this prayer embodied everything a Christian needed to experience to be prepared for baptism. All right? <clears throat> now, some people think, well, if you pray this prayer, it'll just become ritualistic, and it can. So we really should pray spontaneous prayers. We shouldn't really just pray this prayer. Well, I know among certain groups of people it has just become a ritual and the words are meaningless, but it doesn't have to be. Just because some people do it that way doesn't mean it has to be that way. This prayer can be prayed intelligently. When I pray it, my whole mind is focused on the things we're going to talk about tonight to the best of my ability, and it's not just a ritualistic prayer. The one thing about this prayer, <laughs> James said, you have not because you ask not, and sometimes when you ask, you ask amiss. Well, you're not going to pray amiss if you pray this prayer. These are the words of Jesus. You're not going to miss anything when you pray this. You're going to be right on the money, all right? The di disciples actually learned to pray as Jesus prayed because it says in Acts that when they had prayed, the place was shaken. Something happened when they prayed. Something like would have happened with their Lord. So they actually did apparently learn to pray this prayer. So let's learn to pray it as well. 
So I have a number, I have 10, 10 points here tonight uh, that we see from this sermon that I think will really help us. The first one is, let's pray as sons. Our Father. Now how do sons, if they're true sons, and they're sons the way they're supposed to be, how do they regard their father? We see it especially with little children. They believe what he says without question. My daddy says so. They trust what he says, absolutely. This is illustrated by a seventh grade teacher that I had who said that one night before she went to bed, her father read her story about an elephant. And like parents often do to make the story more interesting, he pronounced it elephant the whole way through the story. The next morning, her teacher read a story about an elephant. And the first, time, first utterance of her teacher, of the word elephant, her little hand went up. Teacher, that word is elephant. No. My daddy read me a story last night, and he said elephant. And I remember her telling us the teacher's efforts were totally, absolutely a failure. The teacher could not convince her that that word was elephant, because her daddy had said elephant. That's the kind of relationship that a son has to a father, all right? He is a fatherly God. And we should be to him what in our mind is the ideal son-father relationship, which is absolute trust. All he has to do is say it, and we believe it. All he has to say is say it, or do is say it, and we do it. He is our father. We are his sons. I don't know if that impresses you. That it really impresses me. In fact, John says in 1 John 3, verse 1, Behold what manner, and that word is strange. Look it up in the uh, Greek. It's the word strange. Behold what strange love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God? Servants maybe, but sons? I would understand if God would have said, look, these people are in a bad way. We're going to provide redemption for them, and then they're going to be second-class citizens. They're going to be servants. They're going to be slaves in our kingdom. Uh-uh. They're going to be part of the family. I don't know why God did that. I really don't especially looking at what for a, a pitiful example I have been as a family member of God's family. But he wants us to be sons. In fact, he's going to share the inheritance of his son with all of us. It's amazing. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage, again, put in the place of slaves or servants, to fear... But ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Papa, Father. For the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Do you function with that kind of sense of privilege? That God is your Father. You're actually a son just as completely as if you had been genetically born as a son to begin with. This is a very privileged relationship. There's a song in that hymnal, number 823, Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. This is a tre tremendous relationship. 
In fact, Jesus says later in chapter 7, which we won't have time to discuss, everyone that asketh receiveth. Everyone. It took me years to get that through my head. That every prayer that I pray, will I will receive, but that word has an E-T-H after it. And in the King James Version, not always, but very frequently, if there's an E-T-H after the verb, and it's one of the reasons I like the King James Version, it means continual asking. It means continual asking. And Jesus told us very clearly that it's the persistent prayer that gets answered. Now, God is merciful, and sometimes maybe he answers a prayer you only pray once or twice. But how many times have you said, uh, had something you wanted to pray about, and a few weeks later you realized you, you weren't praying about it anymore? Well, I'm not quite sure what happens with those prayers. I mean, like I said, God is merciful, and he, he, he understands our frame and all that. But it's the persistent prayer. Jesus made it very clear. He talked about judges. He talked about uh, uh, neighbors who uh, you finally get out of bed if there's enough persistence. Well, what's he talking about? Well, if I have a son who comes to the supper table and says, Dad, I want a bicycle. Well, I know how children are. They say that, and tomorrow they'll think of something else. So I don't take that too seriously. But he comes the next night, and he says, Dad, I want a bicycle. He comes the third night, and he says, Dad, I need... Oh, now he knows he needs a bicycle. And if that son just every night at the supper table just pesters us about his need for a bicycle and begins to describe his need, and at the end of the month, I probably would say, you know what? If we bought that boy a bicycle, I think he'd really appreciate it. Follow me? I don't think the prayer is to break down God's resistance. It's to help us understand whether we really want this from God. And so it's the persistent prayer. And so learn to pray persistently. Uh, pray as a son. If you're begging God just like a son begs uh, for a bicycle at the supper table, night after night after night after night, the father will say, I think he's ready to have a bicycle. It's not that the father probably the very first night and said, I, I would like to give the boy a bicycle, but he waits until he realizes that the boy really does understand his need. Okay, so pray as a son. Number two, pray as a brother. It says, our father. God wants a united family. He wants a people. He wants people that have a sense of belonging to a group. They're not living an individualistic life. Something that goes along with this is individualism. We have a lot of people wandering around out there who have no concept that they want to have any sense of belonging to a church or, or to a group of believers. Our Father. It's a sense that all these people are my brothers in the Lord and sisters in the Lord. You notice this prayer has no plural pronouns. They're all singular. You never see I... You never see me, you never see mine, it's always us and our. Our Father. Now the Anabaptists had a statement, and here it is. No man can come to Christ unless he bring his brother with him. The Anabaptists really believed this. You see, much of Christianity would view uh, the Christian experience this way. Here's God. And each individual is coming to God as an individual. That's not how the Anabaptists viewed it. They viewed it this way.
Does that mean that every time you pray, you've got to get all these people to get? No. Jesus said, if you're there and you remember that there's something between you and some brother, he's not there, but you remember there's something between you and him. It's more important to get that relationship taken care of than to pray. Get off up your knees, forget your worship, go make, get, get this relationship worked out, and then come. Because you can't come to God if there's somebody here that's not connected. We'll come to God together, or we won't come to God at all. How seriously do we take that? How seriously do we take that when we sense that there's a problem, that there's a disconnect? Do we work on reconciliation like we talked about last night? Are we willing to uh, sacrifice some things to, to, to get reconciliation to happen? Do we really believe that I have to be one with that brother before I can really effectively pray? Do we really believe that? That's what Jesus said. Okay? First, turn to 1 John chapter 2. Here's a very challenging piece of scripture. 1 John chapter 2. Oh, we must hurry. Look at verse 10. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light. Now look at this. And there is none occasion of stumbling in him. Can it be said that every sin has a relational problem? Obviously, the man who lies to you has a problem with his relationship with you. He doesn't love you. He's taking advantage of you. Obviously, the same thing is true of the person who steals, the boy who fornicates. He's not thinking about the girl and all her needs and all her desires and all her wants and all her everything. He's thinking about himself. He doesn't really love her. He's, it's lust, not love. And if you stop to think about it, all sin is the result, I'm mean, sorry, sorry, Yes, all sin is a result of a lack of love. And he says, if you could ever truly, honestly love every person, there'd be no occasion for sin. You'd never take advantage of anybody. You would never do wrong. That is a tremendous promise. Of course, he goes on to say, but he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. That is a powerful scripture. I'm going to read this again. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. He, there's no cause for him to sin. And all sin, according to this verse, is based on some broken relationship and deficiency of love towards somebody. That's a tremendous statement. In fact, in 1 John, this book that we're looking at, three times he dips down after he gives his theological teaching for an illustration. Three times in the book. And every time, it has to do with loving your brother. That's all John ever talks about in a practical way in 1 John. His practical applications are always your love for your brother. And, and that, to him, is the proof of everything he has to say. That's why we call him the apostle of love. The Bible says we will comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height of the love of Christ. We cannot say father unless we're ready to claim all his children. We cannot say father unless we are serious about claim, claiming all his children as part of the family. 
The next thing we notice is pray with reverence, which art in heaven. We must learn to see things from God's perspective. We must have a reverence for what he says and what he, how he sees things. I think of the 10, 12 spies that went into the, uh, the land of Canaan. Ten of them came back and they said, it's a good land, <laughs> but we cannot go in because the land eats up the inhabitants. I don't know what was happening. Was there a plague and they were dying? Were they killing each other? I don't know, but, but the people were being decimated in that land. And the 10 spies said, if we go in there, we're all going to die. Because the people in that land are dying. It's a good land, but it's, it's lethal to go into that land. And the two spies said, don't you understand that God is getting ready for us to go into the land? Their defense is departed from them. Of course they're dying. God's giving us this land. Now, why were they able to see? They were all looking at the same thing. They were all looking at people dying in that land. One group said, if we go in, we'll die. The, other, the two said, if we go in there, we will ha have an easy job of taking the land because God is already taking their defense away. Why were they able to say that? Because God had told them to go in and take the land, and they were seeing that through the faith that they had in what God had told them. You follow what I'm saying? They believed what God said, and so how do you interpret that? Well, you interpret it through what God said about it, and then you get the right perspective. We need to pray with reverence. Isaiah had put a tremendous amount of confidence in King Uzziah. You go back and read King Uzziah. He was quite a king. He invented all kinds of, of uh, uh, weapons of war, and he conquered huge territory. God blessed the nation amazingly under that man. And then he got leprosy, and then he died. And Isaiah had been a prophet, and he had just thought, it's all going to happen through Uzziah. He put all this confidence in this king, and it all went down the drain. And then he said, and then I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Now, the train is the part of the uh, garment that drags on the ground. Israel thought that the temple was filled with God's glory and presence, and it was, but it was only the train. And Isaiah saw the rest of God in a vision, and he fell on his face. And that's the attitude we need to have. If God says it, we will have to see everything through that perspective or we will not see it rightly. There's also a song in our hymnal, 637, that says, let knowledge grow from more to more, but more of reverence in us dwell. I mean, you can get all the knowledge you want to in the world, but until you are prepared to fall on your face before God and admit that he has the right perspective, your knowledge won't amount to a thing. Let knowledge grow from more to more, but more of reverence in us dwell. So we pray with reverence. Number four, we pray for reverence. Hallowed be thy name. And Cyprian says, <laughs> when Cyprian quotes this prayer, he says, hallowed be thy name in us. Okay? We should have a fear that something we will do will besmirch the character of God. Take that Westboro Baptist Church that goes to funerals of people that they think uh, we're not good people, and stand there and say, God is cursing, uh, put a, and they say all kinds of awful stuff about God's activity among people. And I hear, them on the, I hear this on the phone all the time, what about that best Westboro Baptist Church? Yeah, they've given a horrible concept of God's character, that he's a God of judgment. They give no concept of a God of mercy or redemption. 
Of course, we talk about sin, but we don't talk about it in a constant put-down, condemning way. Jesus didn't come, come to condemn the world. You know what condemning is? Well, <laughs> all right. Change one letter there, and that's what condemning is. That's, if you do that to people. And Jesus did, he could have. He says he didn't come to condemn the world. He came so that all the world would be saved. And so we need to really be careful. What kind of impression do we give of God? All right? Uh, <clears throat> if we want, going again to 1 John, it's one of my favorite books. He talks at the beginning about having fellowship with God, having fellowship with each other, uh, having eternal life and having joy. And then he says, this then is the message. In God, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Till we come to terms with the holiness of God, we're not going to make any progress at all. So we need to pray for reverence, that we would see God like Isaiah in awe and be very careful that words we say, things we do, don't give wrong impressions of his great character and his glory. The fifth thing we pray, we won't need to talk much about because we already did. We pray for a realization of his kingdom. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. I told you the other night that God's first priority on this earth is not your individual salvation. That's a means to an end. His first priority on this earth is to have a kingdom, a society of redeemed people, a group of people who show what the whole world would look like if everybody obeyed Jesus. That's his first priority. He wants the world to look at Weavertown, Mennonite Church, Amish Mennonite Church, and say, if everybody were like that, Bernie Sanders can just take his program and go get lost. That's what it would be like if everybody obeyed Jesus. Are you making that kind of contribution to this church? Or are you pulling it in a different direction? Are you introducing some mixture? Are you making it less likely that the world would ever say that? That's the question that we need to ask. We are to seek it first. It does not say, seek ye first your personal salvation. It says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. We need to commit ourselves to a perfect I shouldn't say perfect, let's say credible. A credible realization of his kingdom on earth. A little colony of heaven, if you please. In fact, I'm not so sure that the, the, our mission is to go out there to get people saved from perdition. I mean, that, that's important and I, we need to do that. But he says he wants the gospel of the kingdom to be preached. He wants us to go and establish a colony of heaven out there and a colony of heaven out there and a colony of heaven out there so people can look in and see the lost ideals of men to see how they can be restored and, and realized and want to become part of it and also demonstrate that. You know, Philippi, Paul says in Philippians, your, our citizenship is in heaven, okay? Our conversation is in heaven. And Philippi was an illustration of that. Philippi was a Roman colony in Greece. And so when you walked toward Philippi, you heard the Greek language, you saw Greek dress, you saw Greek customs, Greek laws, everything was Greek until you stepped inside the city, and then it was all Latin, Roman law, Roman dress, Roman culture, and the people in that city were proud to be Rome away from Rome. Is that your attitude about Christianity? 
that he carries a dignity, a sense, not a sense of superiority in the sense that you look down on people, but a sense of superiority in the sense that this is the best life any person could ever have. Is that what you project to people? That to be a Christian is the greatest thing that could ever happen to anybody. That's the kingdom. A society in which Jesus would feel at home if he walked in here. There wouldn't be a single person here that he'd be unhappy with. There wouldn't be a single person here who who he would say, you're doing a lot of self-expression. You're pretty individualistic. You're not blending very well to make this a kingdom of citizens. What would Jesus say? Number six, we pray for obedience. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. God has no plan for the unsurrendered will. We talked about the cross where we constantly in every decision allow our will to be crossed and changed to conform to Christ. How do we know God's will? I just want to talk about that just a little bit. Well, first of all, it's not God's will if it doesn't harmonize with the, with the word of, with the scriptures, with, with the example of Jesus and, and the revelation. Well, you say, well, that's pretty obvious. If you saw a man praying outside a bank and he was praying and you'd say, what are you praying about? And he would say, well, I'm trying to find out if it's God's will for me to rob this bank. You would say, well, that's really stupid. But people do ask God whether it's okay for them to divorce and remarry. They do ask God whether they should take off their covering. They do ask God all kinds of crazy things, and I could give you illustrations. And they tell you they heard answers, and, and I believe them. Because Bible, the Bible says if you don't want to do the will of God, God will help you. He'll send strong delusions. And you will actually believe that he told you to do what you did. It's only the person who's totally surrendered to God and has really dealt with self and is constantly putting that on the cross that's going to hear accurately from God. So it's only... It's only the will of God, if it harmonizes with the Word of God, and people do all kinds of things. They've compromised everything in the Word of God. You can be a Christian and a member of some of the most conservative, Bible-believing evangelical churches, and you can be divorced and remarried, and you can swear oaths, and you can go to war and kill people, and you can accumulate. You could just disobey everything Jesus said. If you have your ticket that you got for praying a sinner's prayer, you got your ticket, you're good to go. You should live a good life, but if you don't, you're going to make it anyway. That's the message that we hear that's called the gospel. Number two, you have to commit yourself to doing it before God will show you. It's like giving God a blank sheet of paper and saying, look, I'd like for you to write your will on this piece of paper. God says, okay, I will, but did you see that line at the bottom? As soon as you sign your name, I will start writing. There's no point in me telling you your will, if you're not gonna, my will, if you're not going to do it. If any, man will know the will of, if any man will do the will of God, he shall know whether or not Jesus spoke of himself or whether he spoke of something more than that. So, number one, it needs to harmonize with the Word of God. Number two, you need to commit yourself to doing whatever God tells you before he tells you. And number three, you need to commit yourself to pleasing God, not just obeying God. And we talked about that the other night, and we must keep moving. Romans, the great book that people use to promote cheap grace. It's interesting to me that in the very first chapter he talks about obedience to the faith. They want to talk about only faith, only grace. The first chapter talks about obedience to the faith. And in the last chapter it talks about the obedience of the faith. And Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We must hurry on. Number seven, 
We need to pray for necessities. Notice, give us this day our daily bread. That check you bring home at the end of the week is not yours. It's ours. Okay? Otherwise, the prayer is hypocritical because you're saying, give us this day our daily bread. Then you take your check and think it's yours and you treat it that way. Don't pray this prayer. That's what you're going to do with your resources. They belong to us. The Anabaptists made people promise at their baptism that whatever they had belonged to the brotherhood. The Bible says we are to work so we have to give. Of course, pay our bills, but we, but we work so we have some left over to give. Christians are lavish givers. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says God loves a cheerful giver. Do you know what that word cheerful is? Hilaros. God loves a hilarious giver. I tell people that your attitude should be that when the basket is passed, we hear chuckles all up and down the pew. This is a hilarious experience to give. That's the kind of giver God loves. He loves hilarious, wholehearted, cheerful givers. All right? And by the way, did you ever notice what's going to be judged at the final judgment? Nothing's going to be said whether you were born again. Nothing's going to be said about most of the things we spend our time talking about. It's going to be, what did you do to the people, for the people that were hungry? What did you do for the people with the needed clothing? What did you do for the destitute? What did you do for the people in prison? What did you do with your resources? That's the base. We say, well, why does it talk about the new birth? What it's saying is, if you have not had that attitude towards your stuff and the needs of people, you really weren't born again. Does that make sense? This is the evidence of a new birth. Self has been put on the cross. Everything I have is for God and for others. And that's how I live. And that's how people see me. It's not just words I say. That's how I live. Okay? And we could talk a lot, a lot about that. It tells, the Bible tells us to lay up treasures in heaven. Number eight. This is the only part of the prayer that's repeated. Pray for forgiveness. Forgiveness is the basis of all human relationships. Did you know that? Because all of us are human beings who are going to fail. God forbid, but it, it happens. Sooner or later, we're going to disappoint each other. Sooner or later, we're probably going to maybe even hurt each other, hopefully not intentionally, but it happens. I mean, this is, this is normal human relations, and I always say this in a marriage sermon. You're standing here today, you can't imagine this, but there's going to be a time when something's going to happen between the two of you that's going to irritate. And you need to decide before that happens what you're going to do. And this is what you need to decide, that you're just going to let it go. It doesn't mean you can't work on it, but you're going to let it go. You're not going to hold it against the person. You're not going to put pain on the person because of it. You're going to let it go. That's what forgiveness is. It absorbs the hurt and the indignation and lets the other person go free. That's what Jesus did for us. That's what forgiveness is. You absorb the hurt. Yes, you were wrong. And yes, it was his fault. But you absorb it and let him go free. That's what Joseph did. Because when he finally had a son, he named that son Manasseh. Does anybody know what Manasseh means? God hath made me to forget. Joseph, you mean you can't tell me all this awful stuff? Sure, but you'd have heard no bitterness. You'd have heard no hurt. God took the pain. God took the ugliness out of the memory. And Joseph could have told you just objectively the story. And you wouldn't have heard anything about how awful the brothers were and how they, you'd, you'd have heard none of that. 
And that's a blessing. That tells me that if I take the hurt, God will take it away. He will cause me to forget the pain. Then my enemy will be free, and I will be free, and we'll all be free. And Jesus says, if you don't let the person go, you'll then be held in bondage. Corey Ten Boom tells a story, and we're out of time. <laughs> I'll try to finish this tomorrow night. She tells a story that she had a dream, and she had an enemy in a cage, and she was walking around the cage jabbing the person. Of course, the person couldn't get away. And God said, Corey, here's a key. Let him out of the cage. Corey said, no, no, no. She was having too much fun putting the hurt back on him. And she said, finally, she agreed. She took the key. She opened the cage. And guess who came out? Corey herself. That's exactly what Jesus said. If you don't set other people free, don't be surprised if you're bound by your addictions, by your discouragement, by your loneliness, by your depression, by all these things that people go to psychiatrists for. Don't be surprised. It very likely, it could very likely be that you have some people in a cage. And God says, okay, stay in your cage. When you set everybody free, then you will be free. This is a tremendous concept. Jesus came to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That was the year of Jubilee when everybody was set free of all their debts. Well, I have to conclude. How do we do this? Well, the Bible says we're to reckon ourselves to be dead unto sin. And then we're to yield our members unto righteousness. So I'm tempted to do wrong, but I say, look, that wrong no longer has any hold over me. Yes, it's there pulling, but there was a time when it dominated me and it doesn't anymore. And I can now reach forth my members and do what is right, and God will rush in with his grace to make that a reality. Corey Tinboom also describes that. She said, there was a guard at Belsenbergen concentration camp that did everything he could to dehumanize her and to destroy her and to cause her the maximum amount of hurt. And one night she was speaking, after God took her back to Germany, she was speaking one night, and after the meeting, he was coming up the aisle, that man, holding out his hand and saying, Corey, will you forgive me? And she said, ooh, even as a Christian, I hated him. And she said, I had no control over my feelings. And by the way, we don't. When the Bible says love your enemies, it doesn't say anything about fuzzy feelings. It says do good to them, pray for them, and bless them. It's, it's doing loving your enemies. And so she said, I had no control over my feelings, but I did have control over this hand. And he was asking for my hand. And so I reached out my hand as he was walking up the aisle, and she said, and the miracle took place. It was like electricity went down from my shoulder into my arm, and I was able finally to clasp his hand and say, brother, I forgive you, and I love you. And my heart was filled with love. But see, God doesn't do it till we make the decision. See, I told you. If you want grace, listen, think about it. Is God going to give you grace, supernatural enablement, to do something he doesn't want you to do? Of course not. But when he sees you make a decision like Corey made to do an impossible thing that pleases him, all those resources we talk about are poured into that experience to make it a reality. So the key to experiencing the grace of God is obedience. It's obedience. It's doing exactly what God has told us to do, and then he, 
His eyes run to and fro throughout the whole world to see people who are hearts that are perfect toward him and are ready to do something that he can support with all of heaven's resources. That's the secret. And we have to stop there. Father, we thank you tonight for this wonderful little prayer. Oh, God, help us to learn to pray it intelligently. Help us to learn to pray it honestly. Help us to learn to pray it obediently. Help us to learn to pray it in a way that the place is shaken where we pray the prayer and things happen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.